Hello and thanks for joining us on Search for Truth. I'm John Martin and Brian Johnston's our Bible teacher. We're dealing with objections to the Gospel in this 10-part series and today's part 7 and Brian's offering help with those who say, won't a good life get me to heaven? Sometimes an inquirer can be arrogant and make objections through malice, but the Apostle Peter tells us we've not to reflect back any malice which comes to us from the questioner. That's not the Spirit of Christ. Christ who did not revile those who reviled him. We're to give an answer with gentleness and respect. This will glorify God and may be used by him to bring about conviction in the heart of even a foul-mouthed accuser. So, now to Brian. Thanks, John. I'd like you to imagine some folks on the west coast of the United States preparing to swim out to Hawaii. Ambitious? I'd say so. The first swimmer is super fit, a top athlete, and manages to go 35 miles before giving up. The next contestant doesn't look quite as impressive and manages only 10 miles. The last swimmer, to take up the challenge, looks as though he's carrying rather too much weight. Sure enough, a 100 yards is as far as he gets before having to be rescued. What's all this got to do with overcoming objections to the gospel? Well, we're trying to illustrate that a good life will never get anyone to heaven. True, some lives seem better than others, as far as we can tell. In the same way, some of those swimmers look more the part than others. But just as no swimmer, no matter how strong, had any hope of reaching Hawaii, neither has anyone, not even the best life, any hope of qualifying for heaven. If you want to put any names on the scale, even popular suggestions for lives well lived, like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, fall hopelessly far short. But on what Bible facts is our illustration based? Is it really true there's nothing we can do to make it to heaven by ourselves? This is a question that has long haunted the human race. It was on the mind of one particular man we meet in the Bible. Let me tell you about him. Age was on his side. He was still a young man and someone who was held in high regard by society. To cap it all, he was extremely wealthy, rich, influential, even one of the religious sort. Surely he wasn't still searching. But he was, and his quest brought him one day to Jesus Christ. Politely, he addressed Jesus as good master. Jesus immediately turned to the young man and gently challenged him. Why do you address me as good? I'm sure the young inquirer would be familiar with the Old Testament, which declared that no one was good when measured by God's standards. Consistent with this, Jesus said, Don't you know that there is no one good except God himself? In this way, Jesus impressed upon the young man his claim to be the Son of God, equal with the Father. It was the full implication of correctly describing him as good. There's still many people today who are prepared to recognise Jesus as a good man, but not as anything more. As Jesus pointed out on this occasion, that's not possible. We must either take him at his word as being the Son of God come down into manhood, or else his claims were false, meaning he was a liar or lunatic, and so not a good man at all. Returning to the young man in the story, it was that other implication from Jesus' words that shook him by its very starkness. There is none good. Surely a good life counted towards salvation. He'd always tried to do the best he possibly could, and so his question had been, what must I do? 
to inherit eternal life. Now as he listened to Jesus' words, the realisation was perhaps just beginning to dawn upon him that his life by itself, no matter how good, could never in fact be good enough when examined by God's standards. This is the Bible's clear teaching from beginning to end, that if we're relying on good deeds done in the hope of inheriting salvation, then our situation is hopeless, for God views even our best efforts as filthy rags. I'd like you to picture two people, one on a mountain peak and the other in a deep valley, such a large difference in height as measured above sea level, but each hopelessly far short of touching the stars. It's exactly like that with our good deeds. To rely on them for salvation in the day of God's final judgment is utterly hopeless, for even if we are better by far than others, as measured by human standards, we've still all sinned and fallen short of the infinitely higher standard of God. That is the standard by which our eternal destiny is determined. We might think we're doing okay until we properly examine the life of Christ. To use another simple illustration about how we often kid ourselves that we're doing better than we actually are, imagine going into a shop to buy a new pair of shoes. Perhaps we're not fully convinced that we really need a new pair, but someone else encourages us to go shopping. We say, but these ones I have are still fine. I don't really need a new pair. Then we get to the shop and try one new shoe on to check the fit, just to satisfy our friend who's trying to persuade us that we do need a new pair. It's only at that moment, when we stand in front of the fitting mirror in the shop and look at our feet, one with our old shoe on and the other with the new model, it's only then that we suddenly see how shabby our old shoe has become after all. On their own, they looked all right, But side by side with the shining brand new example, we have to agree it's time we treated ourselves to a new pair after all. In the same way, we often fool ourselves into thinking there's nothing really wrong with us. But that's only until such time as we come face to face with God's new shoe standard, as it were. Only until we compare our life with the life of Christ. That's the ultimate reality check. Jesus even called on the high churchmen of his day to turn and believe on him for salvation. Their moral life and all their church-going was no substitute. So the answer to the young man's question is clear from the Bible that there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's a gift received by faith only. The heavenly, like any other inheritance, is based on relationship. And only when we are in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, which results from simple faith in him, can we be assured of a place in heaven. While religion, that's the idea of good works, can be a stumbling block to some in coming to Christ, on the other hand, there are those who say, oh, I'm not the religious sort. Perhaps they've been given the impression that a life of church going, keeping the Ten Commandments, etc., is the passport to heaven, and they realise they're on to a non-starter. If that's where you are today, it may be that's an honest assessment on your part. You see the hypocrisy of outwardly trying to live a good life, while inwardly your thoughts and desires are evil. And you're right, for such attitudes equally break the Ten Commandments. Jesus discussed the Ten Commandments with the young man we mentioned earlier, because if salvation could in practice be earned at all, it would be by keeping the works of the law. The young man claimed he'd done this all his life, 
although he was clearly ignorant of their real depth. For inward attitudes are just as important as outward actions. Jesus said in his teaching that, for example, merely looking lustfully at a woman was the equal of actually committing adultery. Don't be fooled, for if you think the religious sort is that sort which keeps the whole law, then none of us are the religious sort. Jesus discussed the law that day, and God gave it originally that his standard might be seen and the Holy Spirit might convict us of our sinfulness. God is holy and must punish sin. As seen from the law, we've all sinned. How then can we be saved from judgment? The good news is that there's a way, one way. It's to come in brokenness to the cross of Jesus, repent of our sin, and there accept as our personal Saviour, Jesus, the Son of God, who died on that cross, suffering at God's hands the punishment for our sins. Do thank him now for dying for you and rejoice in the gift of salvation. With the young man it was his riches, but don't let anything hold you back from coming to and following Jesus as his disciple. But there's something else I feel we should say before we finish, and it's this, that there's a proper place for good works in Christian teaching. Good works are important, it's just that they come after salvation. They're the result, not the cause of our salvation. In one of the places where I go to preach, the favourite Bible text is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which say, For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. That makes it very clear that salvation, the knowledge of our sins being all forgiven, is all of God's grace, his grace being his undeserved favour which he shows towards us. Undeserved, because it's not merited by any works which we've done. God gives to every true believer the gift of salvation. It's not a reward, but it's a gift we must simply receive through faith. For Christ himself finished the work of our salvation when dying on the cross for us. But then the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2 explains that our new life, which we've received in Jesus, has been planned by God for the very purpose that we should be found doing good works. So it couldn't be clearer. Before we receive salvation through God's grace, our good works counted for nothing. The Bible prophet describes them as being like filthy rags, in fact. They could never produce or merit our salvation, But after humbling ourselves to receive God's gift of salvation, we understand God now expects us to live a life where good works play a very real part.
just as I am. These words draw my thoughts to the thief on the cross alongside Jesus. He had no opportunity to do good deeds. Indeed, he was dying for bad ones. But he acknowledged his guilt and who Jesus is, and he was accepted and forgiven. Today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus told him. Now, we find great encouragement from your emails, so if you've got a question or a comment, please get in touch. And if you'd like one or more copies of the transcript booklet, ask for Overcoming Objections and write to Search for Truth, P.O. Box 111, Lee, spelt L-E-I-G-H, and the postcode is WN71WJ, England. If you're listening in Australia, write to Search for Truth, Box 748, Ringwood, Victoria 3134. In Africa, please write to Search for Truth, P.O. Box 70115, Chilomani, Blantyre, Malawi. Or Search for Truth, P.O. Box 37, Surulere, Lagos State, Nigeria. Canadian listeners, write to Search for Truth, P.O. Box 28026, Brantford, Ontario, N3R7E0. Alternatively, you can email us. The address is sft at churchesofgod.info and you might be interested to visit our website. You can find it at www.searchfortruth.org.uk So it's been great to have you with us today and I hope you're finding these talks helpful. Next week, Brian deals with the objection How can you believe in hell and a God of love? Until then, it's cheerio from Brian and all of us in the studio, Justine and Stephen, our singers, and may God richly bless you wherever you are. Just-